I will ease your mind like 
Thank you all so, so very much. Um, you know, Roger uh, just killed it with that song. He just absolutely hammered it. Last week, he told me that he was going to sing that song. He wanted to do Bridge Over Troubled Waters. And I said, Roger, that is a perfect song. I mean, that is, not only is it perfect because it describes what we've been talking about, but it also describes the Christ followers role during all of this turmoil and all of this troubled waters that we're experiencing in this country. It is our role to be that bridge over troubled waters. We're supposed to be that thing that Mac talked about a few Sundays ago when he was starting his uh, Welcome Home series, which I encourage you to go and watch if you haven't seen it, called Shalom, not just a, a, a greeting that the Jewish population used on the Sabbath, but, but it's not just peace, but it's an active peace. It's not enough just for an uh, peace by accident. It's an intentional peace because of action. And those actions are the actions of the Christ followers and what we're supposed to be doing to be that bridge over troubled waters. So we're blessed to have Roger and his talents that we're able to use as a backdrop to start our and continue our study today. We are doing, as you recall from last Sunday, freedom as I see it, but as a subpart of Mac's series of Welcome Home. But we're in the season of freedom. We celebrated Juneteenth, which of course is the day that General Granger arrived here in Texas with the news of the freeing of the slaves in Texas. And we just celebrated July 4th, which is the day that our country became independent and free from the rule of Great Britain. But we're discussing freedom as I see it with some of the challenges that we're facing today in our society. Um, I had a conversation with a friend this week who incidentally is from Ukraine. She's an American, but she was brought here at nine years old from Ukraine. And she's sort of observing some of this from afar because her family doesn't have the history that most of our families have in this country. And we started discussing the things that I mentioned last week, particularly that there have been two racial upheavals in this country. One was slavery, and when slavery ended and the apple cart was turned over, all of a sudden by the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment, the slaves were on equal footing, theoretically, with their slave owners. And America didn't handle it very well. There was tension. There was laws put into place that were discriminatory. And there were customs and, and um, things that were done among all of our communities that weren't very well presented. And this went on for the next hundred years. And then we had another racial upheaval in this country in the late 50s and the 60s with the civil rights movement. And we had the 64, the 65, and the 1968 Civil Rights Act, all which were passed by Congress to change the laws so that we could, not know, we could no longer, by law, discriminate in hotels, colleges and universities, workplaces, service to our country. And now we have 55 years later in 2020, another upheaval. 
And she asked, well, if the laws have been changed in the first upheaval and the laws have been changed in the second upheaval, what's the end game? And that's a fair question. And I said, well, the end game now, because I think all laws are in place, but now we have to change the hearts and minds of men and women. And she said, good luck. <laughs> That's going to be quite an undertaking to change the hearts and minds of men. We know from our study last week in Galatians 5.13 that we started this series with with the scripture that says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom, and that's freedom in Christ, to indulge the flesh, what we want. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And we talked last week about how do we do that? And the first way we do that is we, of course, understand each other with our hearts. And interestingly, I met someone at a restaurant this week, and the restaurant, we. <laughs> We went to, I went to get an order of green tea and honey, and I walked by this sign, and I want to show you this sign. I, I just had to stop and take a picture of this sign with my cell phone. The sign said, don't hate what you don't understand. It stopped me in my tracks. I said, now, now there's a little message from God that tells me we're talking about the right thing. You can't hate what you don't understand. So as us as those of us who are Christ followers, we know that the first thing we're going to do is try to understand each other with our heart. And we do that by listening with our ear. And, and we listen actively asking questions. And we also listen with some anticipation that we're going to hear something that we might not want to hear or that we might not like. And we might even disagree with. But we listen actively. And we do that so that we can do what? We want to do shalom. We want to do the act of peace. We want to push out. And so the only thing we're going to talk about today is how do we do that? And we do that with the most powerful thing that we have available to us, and that's our words. That's our words. And we watch our words with our mouth. This is the last thing we're going to cover. We watch our words with our mouth. How we speak, what we say, when we speak, how we say it are all important. You see, God made the ability to speak very special. We literally can change lives with what we say. If you say two words, in the middle of a marriage ceremony, I do. You've changed the lives of two people forever. If you say, I love you, you literally can change someone's life. If you say, I hate you, you can change the life of a person forever. You can say, can I help you? I'm going to pray for you. You are a blessing to me. All of those things can change a person's life. Coaches can have an unbelievable impact on children, especially children that come from broken homes or homes where they've never heard a word of encouragement. And that's why in many instances, coaches are the only people a child has heard words of encouragement. 
He literally or she literally can change the life of a young child. Words can send us into war or words can negotiate the terms of peace between nations. Words can create poems, songs that literally touch our soul. Now we have trivialized words with our social media outlets, uh, with the ease at which we write them and say them, but that doesn't change the fact that words are meant to have an effect. Eugene Peterson, who wrote for the Trinity Forum, put it this way, words are holy, all words. We do well to reverence them, to be careful in our use of them, to be alarmed at their desecration, to take responsibility for using them accurately and prayerfully. Christians, followers of Jesus, have an urgent mandate to care for language spoken, heard, or written as a means by which God reveals himself to us, by which we express the truth and allegiance of our lives, and by which we give witness to the word made flesh. He goes on to say, in the midst of one of the most polarized, tribalized, and angry periods of recent American history, our ambient public rhetoric is, to say the least, less than ideal. It is increasingly commonplace to see words used to confuse rather than clarify, to provoke rather than persuade, to distort rather than define, even to the point of dehumanizing those whom we dislike or with whom we disagree. Our social media structures and algorithms reinforce and reward silliness, snark, and verbal savagery with likes, retweets, comments, and attention. It has all become so widespread, so seemingly normal, as to make it easy to forget how dangerous and destructive it is to our soul, self, and society. Words are powerful and they were meant to have effect. Now we know that biblically words can do a few things and let's take a quick study of those and then we're gonna get to some words that I've used or that I've heard in conversations with my friends. I'm gonna continue to let you in on some conversations that I've had with my friends during this time. The first thing that we should look at is that words can save. This is how important words are. They can save literally our soul. Romans 10.10, Romans 10.10 says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So we know from reading this scripture and from what we discussed a bit last week that the heart is used in our relationship with God, we first have to use our heart to accept Christ and to believe, and that same heart is used in our relationship with each other, to understand each other, which we discussed last week. But it is not until we use our mouth that we are saved, that Christ comes into our life. We have to actually profess our faith with our mouth. 
in order for us to be saved. God gave our words power. He put it at our disposal and said, your heart's fine. I got to have your heart, but I want to hear you say that you want the saving grace of my son, Jesus. And when you say it, I will accept it. Words build. Ephesians 4.29. Words build. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. You want to know how to build Roger's bridge across troubled waters? We use our words. Written or stated, even implied. We use our words. That's how we do it. We build with our words. But you know, as quickly as we can build with our words, we can even more quickly tear down. They can be destructive. And it seems that that is the preference of the day, to tear down rather than to build up. Words can benefit. Ephesians 4.29. Let's continue the latter part of that verse. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for the building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Is it all starting to make sense now? You notice that last week we talked about the ability to listen. And so as we go through this time and we're trying to build this bridge over troubled waters, we use our words to build others up. We use our words to benefit others, not ourselves. If we're serving others like we talked about last week, if we have their interest in mind, not ours, we're using our words, we're trying to benefit them and lift them up. And here's the deal. You notice at the end of that, it says it will benefit those who listen. So if on the other side, they're listening to our words and we're trying to build them up, you know what's going to happen? We are going to build a bridge and we will figure it out. We can figure it out and we have to figure it out. And these are my last words. Ephesians 4, 31, 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Apparently, there's different forms of malice. We're supposed to get rid of all of them. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So what does that mean? That means, number one, we don't participate in negativity. We, we just don't. I, I'm gonna, I want you to do a, a, just a test. Uh, for those of you who are on Twitter, for those of you who are on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, uh, just put out there something nice about some controversy that's going on right now. Just say something nice. And I assure you, at some point, you're going to get a negative comeback from somebody. It doesn't matter how nice you're trying to be. People will draw you in or attempt to draw you into negativity, into malice and slander and brawls. And those of us who follow Christ, we're to stay above that fray. 
We aren't drawn in. We stay above the fray. The second part of that, of this verse, it says the last thing it said is, and we're supposed to forgive. Now, that means that likely if you engage, if you're trying to actively pursue shalom, a active peace, somebody is going to say something to you or do something to you where you'll have to forgive them. It's going to happen. They're going to call your name. They're going to associate you with a group that you may not be associated with. They're going to say something, spread something. Your family member may not invite you to the next party. Your friends may push away. You may even have your parents or your children who say, ah, I can't go along with that. And you know what we're called to do? Forgive them and keep moving. Why? Because we've been forgiven. Because we know we're not perfect and we know we've stumbled around and we've been given forgiveness. And so we're going to pass it on. What does that look like? I mean, this thing we're called shalom and active peace. What does that look like? Well, several years ago, um, three of us went on a golf outing at a prestigious golf club here in Austin. One was Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court. One was a prominent lawyer with a prominent international firm. The third one was me. I'm not saying I'm prominent, but I had at that time worked for Governor Perry as his general counsel, and I was serving on the Board of Regents at Texas A&M, and I was with a major law firm here in town. Three accomplished African-American men going out to play golf. We pull up to the front of the club. A young man, I'm going to guess the kid was 16, 17 years old, working at the golf club. He pulls our bags out. He loads them on the golf cart. We get in our golf cart to head off to the driving range. And the young man said, you boys have a good day. And we started on the golf cart. <laughs> and we stopped. What did he say? Now, for those of you who don't understand, for those of you who were born after 1968, you might not quite get that black men were called boys as a custom in this country, um, even though they were fully grown men. And it was a put down, it was not a term of endearment. So the three of us had a choice. We could go back and confront the young man and straighten him out. Or we could give him the Southern treatment. Y'all know what the Southern treatment is? We just kept driving onto the driving range and said, bless his heart. <laughs> That's the Southern treatment. Bless his heart. He doesn't know any better. He'll figure it out later. Forgive. That's shalom. Forgive. You're, it's active peace. It doesn't just happen. You have to make a decision to make it happen. Words are important, and what you say matters. Right now, your words about anything that's going on right now, um, they're, they're very important to your children, in your conversations with your children, your friends, your community. Your words are important, and they can make a difference. Despite the ease at which they may come to you, 
And, and despite the fact that so many words are coming at us off of our TV screen from so many different sources, many of which you probably ought to ignore or at least discern, um, they're important. Your words can continue this idea of fear and anger and malice and discord or you can provide words of love and comfort and, and, and opening of doors and building of bridges. Your words are important. What you say is impactful. So what are my words? You know, I've been talking a lot about this and what are my words? When people have conversations with me and they want to talk about monuments and flags and history and what's going on in the world, what are my words? Do I have words of shalom, active peace, or do I take the opportunity to cut and slice and maybe even, maybe even make someone feel a little guilty? Well, let me tell you what I do. The first thing I, I ask people to do is to do some research. I like to read. I've always liked to read. Since I was a little bitty boy and my mom and dad used to get me, you know, We Wisdom magazines that used to arrive in the mail in the mailbox, I've always loved to read. And so I encourage people to read, but I encourage them to read about my history, not just the history that they may or may not have studied in college and high school. So I, I'll give them books to read. I'm going to share some of those books with you today. I'm going to, run, I'm going to go through the list fairly quickly. Um, but if you want to go back to the website, uh, lhc.org, uh, there, there will be a place where you can get this book list. The first book that I'd encourage you to read, and I'm going to try to take them in chronological order with the exception of one. The first one is John Adams by David McCullough. I think it's a great book on how our American uh, country began. It, it, you, you'll learn things in that book, particularly about who wrote the Declaration of Independence, and it's not who you think, but, but you'll understand why that person that you think was given the credit for writing it. Everybody liked him. The second book I'm going to encourage you to read is The Hemings of Monticello. The Hemings of Monticello by Annette Gordon Reed, Pulitzer Prize winning author. And it's slavery from the vantage point of the slave in the house of a patriot. It talks about Martha Jefferson, Tom Jefferson's wife, inheriting a family from her father. And the family she inherited was her sisters and brothers. You need to read about it. It's a great book. Three, The Peculiar Institution, Slavery, by Kenneth M. Stamp. That was written in 1956. It is a very well-researched book. I am shocked at the amount of research he was able to accomplish before computers and technology that we have now. And he doesn't really make a value judgment for or against slavery. He simply lays out the economics and the practicalities of it so that you can understand it. Four, Grant by Ron Chernow. It's about Ulysses S. Grant. In my opinion, perhaps one of the most underrated 
Americans that we have. He was a fine man. And let me just tell you, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm sorry, but I got to cheat just a little bit. Grant's wife's dad was a slave owner. Grant was given a slave by his father-in-law. Grant freed him because he didn't believe in slavery. You want to know what the slave's name was? Bill Jones. I like Grant. Um, five, Team of Rivals. Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. It is the best read that I've, that I've read of Abraham Lincoln. I've read a few other books on Abraham Lincoln, but in my view, this is the best one. Um, and Grant and Lincoln are two of my favorite, obviously. Uh, by the way, when I go to Washington, D.C. and I go for a run, on one run, I'll go to see Lincoln at the Lincoln Memorial, and on the next run, I'll go see Grant. And if you look at the two memorials, Grant is sitting on his horse looking down the um, avenue at Lincoln sitting at the opposite end Plaza. It's pretty cool. Anyway, just a little side note. Um, six, Inherently Unequal by Lawrence Goldstone. This is not one that you'd find in most people's reading list, but I, it's a very good description of Supreme Court decisions about the legal rights of African Americans from 1870 to 1890. And that's where the die was cast and the stone set for how blacks were treated in America until the Civil Rights Movement. Seven, one of my favorites, The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. It's about the Great Migration. And if you've never heard of the Great Migration, don't feel bad, I hadn't heard of the Great Migration, but my family lived the Great Migration. I didn't realize it had a name. And it's about blacks that moved from the South to the North. Why? And it takes some very specific individuals, real life individuals, real life people, and follows them as they made their way North, New York, Chicago, Detroit. If you're from Texas, West to Denver and LA. Great book. And it hits home for me because this is what my family did, except for my dad who stayed here in Texas and, and ranched. The last book I'm going to give you is an extra credit because I think you either need to read all or some of these others before you can handle this last one. It's called The Slave Narratives of Texas by Dr. Ron Tyler and Lawrence Murphy. It's only 192 pages. It took me about two weeks to get through the book because it's pretty intense. It is the actual words of the slaves themselves during a project that the United States of America did from 1933 to 1935 where they went out and recorded the comments of the slaves. So hang on on that one. You get extra credit if you can read Slave Narratives of Texas. So do your research before you have conversations and before the words come out of your mouth. Discern good reading versus not so good. Not all publications are, are well-written or well-researched. So make discern between those two. Mac talked about this a few Sundays ago. As Christ followers, we, we have to exercise discretion and not just read and just absorb everything that we read. You gotta determine if what you're reading is worthy of our time and, and, and comment. Third, discuss with close friends and those whose opinions you respect. Discuss with close friends and whose opinions you respect. We took one of these books, Inherently Unequal, and I had a state official, I won't say who just yet, um, read the book 
and I assigned chapters to a number of people and uh, everybody in the room respected each other. They may have had different views about things, but they all respected each other. I had a meet at my house and everybody had to report on their chapter in the book. I fed them dinner. We had discussion. It was wonderful. Everybody left appreciating and knowing a little bit more about the history of our country and each other. And then the last thing you do is dive in. Dive in. So my words, what did I do to build, to benefit during these conversations I've told you about? Because I've had conversations about flags, monuments, law enforcement, history. What I would do is I would tell people that I have to overlay everything that I think about all of these things with my family. I don't know as much about my maternal side, I'm still working on that, but on my paternal side, the Jones side, I know a little bit. And I want to introduce you to my family and let's just have a little discussion about some of the things that I've discussed with my friends and people who call me. The first thing I want to do is I want to show you a picture of the Amos Jones family. And if you would mind putting that picture on the screen. The man in the middle of that picture is Amos Jones. And the man who's the young man who's standing behind him, the tallest one, is my grandfather, Gonzalez Jones. Amos Jones had seven boys and one girl. The woman sitting to his left is Mary Carr Jones, my great-grandmother. Amos Jones is my great-grandfather. My great-great-grandfather was Ephraim Jones. I don't have a picture of him. But Ephraim Jones was bought in Tennessee and brought to Texas in 1858 as a slave at 19 years of age. A few years later, in June of 1863, he had Amos Jones, the man in the picture. Amos Jones was born in June of 1863, and if you know anything about civil, the Civil War, Grant won the Battle of Vicksburg at the end of June of 1863. It was that battle that splattered Grant's name all across the Northern papers as a very accomplished general, and ultimately was the first step in him becoming the combined commander of all of the United States Army. Just a few days after Grant won in Vicksburg, the Battle of Gettysburg started in July 1, 2, 3, and 4 of 1863. So on my viewpoint and in my, from my eyes, um, the Battle of Vicksburg, the Battle of Gettysburg, and all of the battles that flowed from there, the men who died for the blue were fighting for the man in the picture. Amos Jones, who was just a few weeks old. They were fighting so that when he turned 19, he couldn't be bought or sold or put up as collateral at a bank or given away as a wedding gift. In 1865, that little baby was two years, was two years old when uh, General Granger arrived on the shores of Texas. And that little two-year-old ex-slave, 17 years later, bought 50 acres of land in Burleson County, Texas, where I grew up. So he wasn't sold at the age of 19. He was able, because of his freedom, to buy property and farm his own land. 
He ended up adding about a thousand acres to that acreage and became a successful farmer and rancher. He even owned a T-model Ford. He had to defend his family. In the early 1920s, race riots broke out in Caldwell, and he went to the Italians across the river in, in, uh, near Bryan College Station and bought eight rifles, Winchester Model 1892 repeating rifles, for each one of his boys and for himself to protect his family. He is an American. He is my great-grandfather, and my wife and I have repurchased that original 50 acres of land that he bought, and we are trying to put together the land around it that he purchased. I want to show you a picture of a tree that's on that property. If you wouldn't mind putting a picture of the tree up. This is a tree that's on that original 50 acres of land that he bought, and that tree is a pear tree that he planted. My brother says he remembers my great-grandfather's tree orchard. I don't know how old that tree is, but what I will tell you is as beat up as it looks, it still produces pears. And my sister harvests the pears, and she makes jellies and jams from the pears. That tree is an iconic tree in the Jones family because it ties us to the man that planted that tree, who was a slave. So when you ask me about monuments, my response is the man that planted this tree, who was a slave, wasn't conferred with about monuments and flags. So they're, they're, they're not my monuments, and, and they're not my flags. So I'm, I'm not going to tear down anybody's monuments and flags. And I understand how important these monuments are to some people. And to exercise shalom, I, I'm not going to tear them down. But when those people care what I think, they will take them down. I won't have to. That is how you do shalom. Johnita and I attended a tailgate at Texas A&M. The man whose letter I read to you last week, Curtis, was sponsoring this tailgate. And there were a bunch of Aggies there all congregating, eating barbecue. About 20 yards away in this mass of tents was a flag fluttering high above the tent. And one of our friends named Eddie, who's mentioned in Curtis's letter last week, was getting a little agitated about that flag. By the way, Eddie's white. And Eddie seemed to get a little more and more agitated, and finally Eddie disappeared. We didn't know where Eddie went. But let me tell you what Eddie did. Eddie walks over to that tailgate, and he introduced himself. He said, my name is Eddie. I'm a class of 81, fighting Texas Aggie, member of the bugle rank of the Aggie band. I'm a Marine, I fought in Desert Storm and Iraq. The young man that he was talking to said, well, thank you for your service. He goes, no, don't thank me for my service. He said, when I went and fought for my country, I didn't fight for that flag. I fought for the United States of America. And he turned and he walked off. We didn't know what had happened. 
We came back and we said, Eddie, where you been? What's going on? He said, I just, I had to do something. So you know what Eddie did? Eddie knew I couldn't go over there because he knew if I had gone over, there'd be a fist fight. There may be something worse than that. So you know what he did? He walked over to me and he took my backpack and he loaded it on his shoulder and he says, I got this. Shalom. He then gave all of what he had as his backdrop to ask the young man to take down the flags. And then he left. He didn't get into a fist fight. He's a Christ follower. He just walked off. Did he change their hearts and minds? I don't know. I, I don't know. But what I do know is a few minutes later, flag came down. That's shalom. That's active peace. That's how we bridge the gaps. That's how we bridge this turmoil. We don't jump in the fray. We go above it. We're Christ followers. We're at a turning point in history, and we have to get this right. I, I don't have a whole lot of time left. I mean, I've got maybe 20, 30 good years left, maybe. I don't know. At some point, I'm the wildebeest at the back of the pack trying to get across the Serengeti and keep the crocodiles from taking me down in the middle of the Nile. But we have young people, and we have a country to save. And what I do is for those who come behind me. I want to plant trees whose roots grow deep, like my great-grandfather, that bear fruit for long after I'm gone. I don't want to sow seeds of discourse, but of love and compassion and to build and to benefit. Why? Well, would you mind putting another picture of my granddaughter up on the screen, please? I told you I might do this. My, my granddaughter, Harlow Jones, is biracial. She has the blood of all of America running through her veins. And I'm going to ask you to help me teach her. I want, I want you to help me make this world a better place for her. And all of her friends that are born or not yet born. I want to make sure she understands both her slave history and her free history. But most of all, I want to leave her a world where she can enjoy life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness and peace. Because during this time of turmoil, those of us of faith, through our persistence and our acts of shalom, we fought on her behalf to change the hearts and minds of men and women. So I'm going to leave you with a question that Curtis, my friend, asked last week. Who will join me? Let's end with a prayer to prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that you are here and we know that you have power and we know that you have the grace to sustain us. 
and we've learned from your word, we have heard your word, and we are now called upon to ask Christ followers to move out, to understand, to listen, to watch our words as we seek to do your will. Father, perhaps everything that we've done, everything that we've experienced has prepared us for such a time as this when our country needs us desperately. Give us the courage to stand up for what we know to be right and true and just, though perhaps unpopular with some, but appreciated by others. Father, help us to do your will, not the will of man. Help us to see the world as you see us, all equal, all one, all, all the same. And help us to prepare a better world for those who come behind us. We ask for your blessing. We ask for your guidance. We ask for your wisdom and discernment as we seek to show your love and your grace and your kindness and your compassion. Even in a world of troubled waters. We ask these prayers in your son Jesus' name. Amen.